Hello everyone, it's good to have you back with us. Welcome back to BSF Lecture Series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region. Today, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he shares with us the heart of a disciple who seeks to faithfully follow in his footsteps. Before I begin the lecture, I just want to share a few brief announcements for this week for you to be aware of. First off, BSF, uh, it really depends on your voluntary support. So if you have a donation or a tithe to offer to BSF, which goes towards supporting the organization, but also supporting our in-person facilities, where 25% uh, of any giving is automatically taken to support uh, utilities and as a thanks offering for the different churches that uh, are in-group meetings take place. Uh, that would be greatly appreciated. But one uh, word that we would like to encourage you to remember is when you give, please use your class code 1232. If you do not use your class code, the uh, any giving goes to a general fund and uh, we are not able to support our local churches in San Francisco if it is given that way. So I'd like to ask that you remember to use our class code 1232. Two, please think of other ways to support your local group, whether it might be taking a friend out for coffee or engaging them maybe uh, on a hike or just inviting and, and meeting with other friends in the informal time outside of class. That's a great blessing and encouragement to the men, most uh, who are still kind of trying to uh, self-isolate and, and not go out um, as much um, given that uh, the city is now slowly opening up, it may be a good idea for us to try to fellowship again. Um, number three, if you would like to meet in person, you're always welcome to drop in on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. at First Baptist Church. You can also bring along a friend if they're interested maybe in perhaps joining a, a intentional um, and prepared Bible study such as ours. For BSF has a mini Matthew studies, a great way for them to gain exposure to BSF and uh, BSF survey shows that 35% of those participants in a mini-study became class members. And you can introduce them to this uh, study through the link provided on the slide. And then fifth uh, announcement is discover and discuss on Saturdays. We are welcoming current members to welcome uh, and join us at the leaders training on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. that are in person and also uh, offered online. It's a hybrid meeting, so you can join us even if you cannot be there in person. And you can just drop us an email if you're interested at BibleStudyNSF at gmail.com and we'll send you a Zoom, Zoom code whereby you can join us and just kind of check out what leaders do and perhaps uh, it might interest you to become a leader as well. And the final announcement that I have is in regards to a big uh, day coming up for kids. Halloween's a perfect time to share the gospel. I know some of you are ambivalent about how to uh, be exposed to the, uh, this holiday and what to do about it. But one thing that you might be able to do if you do have visitors coming by your door is to prepare a candy bundle that includes a gospel track. Now, there is a lot of gospel tracks out there that introduce the original meaning of Halloween as a Christian holiday. Uh, it used to be called what's called All Saints Day, and it was a time in which, um, very much in keeping with what we're studying in chapter 5 of Matthew, it was a time in which to remember the faithful lives of Christian saints who had lived before us. A time when people would uh, gather together sometimes at 
uh, at cemeteries and have picnics with families and church members and reflect on and read the inscriptions left by family members in memory of their faithful Christian relatives. And while we don't do that anymore as much, uh, it is still a practice some denominations actually still pursue. So the actual holiday, All Saints uh, Day, is November 1st, but the night before, All Hallows Eve became known as Halloween. And it's taken on a sinister uh, kind of um, tone to it. All Hallows Eve became polluted with lies and superstition promoting fear, anxiety over death, and every evil force that has been seeking to undermine God's work of giving life. So one way we might recover this time is to hand out fun tracks oriented toward children to inform them of the original meaning of Halloween and give them something higher and nobler to think about as they munch on their candy. So several organizations offer Halloween tracks. If you would like to share your favorite ones, you can post uh, those on our Facebook page at BSF San Francisco. You can search that for that, not on Google, but on Facebook's actual page, and you can locate that group page and uh, participate with us in the dis- discussion. Let's move on to the lecture for today. I was watching a video journal about a modern-day monk recently. He's a young man in his 30s, and he spent part of the day teaching young boys class ages 8, through 13, um, at a period when they're starting to get very curious about the adult world and asking a lot of good questions. And they were frequently asking him about aspects of his monk life that they thought would be difficult for them. So they'd ask, can you play video games? Are you allowed to go outside and do what you want? Do you have to shave your head? Do you have a girlfriend? So even at this age, children start to think of all the things that a Christian must sacrifice in order to follow God. They have all these very weird ideas about the sacrifices that they have to make. All the fun and beautiful things of the world that ordinary people enjoy, but for some reason, they think Christianity wants to snuff out and take away. It makes Christianity sinister in a way, like the other lie, that God will send you to the darkest places of Africa if you commit to him. It raises the old suspicions from that garden that God is wanting to take away from you the good and fun things and put you someplace you will really regret all your life. That God is holding something back, perhaps something selfishly that will make us good. God doesn't need anything from us, nor does he gain anything from holding anything back from us. Instead, the Bible clearly teaches that every good and perfect gifts come from above, from the Father of lights. It teaches us that God is the best and most loving shepherd who desires that none should perish, but gain eternal life. This eternal life is allegorized as a place of great celebration, of joy and thanksgiving. It is not the party hosted by a miserly God, a stingy God. Whereas we think of God's blessing in a fixed pie mindset, as a limited resource of a kind, God's blessing is not something we can compete for or perform to get or something where if some gain more of it, there isn't enough for others so that it must be fought after or hoarded. God sees blessing as divinely relational, originating from himself. Blessings do not come from performance, religiosity, meritorious living, and glowing spiritual resumes. Blessings come from knowing and loving the heart of God and deepening that relationship with Him as you mature in your faith. Blessings can easily come to the poor and those in the most profound circumstances of need. 
God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3.20 So the big idea for today is God sees blessing as divinely relational. Relational originating and partaking from Himself. Our outline today is divided into two divisions. The first is identity in Christ defined. That's Matthew 5, 1-12. And then the second is identity in Christ demonstrated, taken from Matthew 5, 13-16. So two divisions, identity in Christ defined, verses 1-12, and identity in Christ demonstrated, that's 13-16. And that is where we'll start in this chapter as we look at Jesus' Beatitudes, the teaching on what true blessedness is and what it leads to. So contrary to what we typically think, God knows that our very best and blessed position is to be in intimate relationship with Himself. So I know this is a very mundane example, but think of a kitchen appliance. Can a kitchen appliance operate and do the marvelous things it was manufactured to do if it isn't plugged in to the electric outlet and properly maintained by the owner? So without our connection to God, like that appliance, we gather dust, fall into disrepair, and rust away with age. We are so fallen in our sins that we don't recognize the gravity and seriousness of our situation until something happens to draw attention to it. Have you had a time when sudden health issue took over your life and it made you very insecure and anxious? Or how about when going through a job transition without a reliable paycheck? Or when your children go very astray from God and they run into spiritual dangerous places in their lives? Fear, doubt, and worry can take over and run down our faith so much that without even realizing it, we live incapacitated and ineffectual faith lives. And when that fragile sense of peace and happiness is broken, our first reaction is to blame God. Not the sin, which He had definitively warned, would surely bring us death. Sin breaks our relationship with God and puts us on a path of a million deaths, so to speak. With sin, our lives are seriously hampered, compromised, and in jeopardy all the time. God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 In the midst of what we see, may seem hopeless and compromised, Jesus tells us that we have nothing to fear because He has overcome all things for us. He is calling us to live into our true identity as His sons and daughters of God. So let us look at the Beatitudes and look at each one as it reflects the victorious relationship we have with Jesus. And while we review each of them, notice that many of them start from a place of poverty and need. Like in the beginning of creation, where we learn that God created the universe from darkness, emptiness, and void, we can see that He did this to teach us the contrast of what it is to be with and without Him, without His presence and His Word working in the world. We have to remember, it is not because darkness or emptiness was more primal or stronger than the light, but we find we fully appreciate His presence and work far better when we have known something of what it is to not experience Him, putting forth His hand and His words of the truth into our lives. So the contrast is more stark and more uh, greatly emphasized in our learning. So slide four, uh, we look at the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I want to look at each one by its contrast so we get a fuller uh, picture of why these are significant. This contrast in particular with uh, being rich in the body such that the earth is the only treasure we know and ever wish for all our lives. When you experience poverty and need, the feeling of gratitude and thanks do not easily leave you when you gain some wealth later on in life. It is when we have received things all too easily that we get spoiled and fail to appreciate what we've been given. The kingdom of God was bought for us with the great price of God's Son. Those who experience poverty of spirit know the great refreshing and joy that comes from having a relationship with Jesus that time cannot erase. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This contrasts with the person who has not known true sorrow because life was always easy. Every good thing was easily provided for. Perhaps Job lived like this. Such people don't know that it is suffering and trial, things that scare us and make us anxious, that makes a child run to their parent. It's in mourning that we go to God, truly pleading, depending, and seeking earnestly for comfort and peace that He is eager to give to us as a loving Heavenly Father. And these moments draw us closer to Him and build and strengthen our relationship. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This meekness contrasts strongly with the competitive attitude that the world teaches us we must have to be successful. The world teaches that it is the alpha male, the type A personality that gets things done by exercising decisive and authoritative control over people and situations. These are the types of personality that devise clever schemes and strive and compete with other competitors and show great ambition and drive for personal success. There is nothing they won't do to win. In fact, the thing they hate most is in life is losing and being around losers. But Jesus was not like this. He was none of these. He led as a shepherd who stewarded God's people with grace and love. He demonstrated himself as gentle and lowly in heart and invited his disciples to take his yoke, which is far easier and lighter because he was bearing their load for them. He called his followers to imitate himself. These are the ones who would inherit the earth, which Adam was told to cultivate and manage so many others may also thrive and flourish in God's given environment. Adam and Eve were not meant to stay in the garden, but God called them to go into all the world. And so to learn from God's design and to move forth and go out, expanding the work of cultivating and stewarding God's resources, so generations of others would be blessed. But what we have today is a bit different from God's intention. A lot different, actually. Today, the economy of competition depletes the world resources in excessive consumption and is thoughtlessly enslaving the labor of millions of people poor under inhumane conditions. Our holidays are black days of buying things we do not need and accumulating things that we'll never be able to derive happiness from. God intended for the meek in Christ to inherit and nurture all things in the attitude and mind of his heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger for righteousness contrasts with those who do not see righteousness as having any value at all, so as never to have any understanding of what is wrong and what is sin. Have you met people who have had such a poor sense of right and wrong, they never took a stand for righteousness in any shape or form? Their personal morality is, do whatever you need to, but don't get caught. Do whatever you need to, but don't get caught. 
or I can do whatever I want as long as it benefits me. What's wrong with that? These days, people don't like this kind of thinking, but, and they call it by different names, uh, clinical names like narcissism or antisocial behavior, sociopathic behavior, psychopathic. These people prey on others as they lose their own souls. But the Bible asks, what will a man gain if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what will he give in exchange for his soul? Instead of being filled, such people become wasted by their refusal to acknowledge God's righteousness. Aptly, we have movies now that oddly depict more vampires and zombies and other evil predators than ever before in what they aptly call the land of the living dead. When one realizes how depraved and empty our sins, addictions, and habits are, we quickly realize it's taking us closer and closer to the land of that living dead. James 1 says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God did say in the beginning, You shall surely, surely die. Those who run to God finds His righteousness so good, beautiful, true, and bright, they rejoice in who He is. When thirst and hunger for Him and His righteousness is what our lives are about, our lives become like those jars of wine at the wedding of Cana, they are filled to overflowing by receiving Christ as the perfect bridegroom who fulfills all righteousness for us. Next, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is a vital part of our salvation. It is one of the pillars of love. It contrasts with those who are coldly calculating and impartial. Those who hold grudges are unforgiving and demanding exact just punishment for a detailed list of wrongs that they keep close to their heart. Mercilessness is self-righteousness. It's a form of that. A person who doesn't know how to forgive doesn't fully understand what it is to be forgiven. Jesus tells us, He who is forgiven much loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It is hard to have compassion if you've never experienced the need for compassion in your own life. Jesus had compassion for us. Mercy is at the heart of Christ, because it was by mercy, love, and compassion He sought us out and took on all of our infirmities, our penalties, that would have destroyed us. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Is it any wonder that those who hold and love filthy, sinful things in his heart, his or, or her heart, will not have the holy capacity to see the beauty and majesty of God? An unrepentant heart is always at odds with itself. It commits worship of so many different idols in one's life, it has trouble seeing anything clearly, let alone God. A cluttered and divided heart is always swimming in a quagmire of lusts and depravities, such that unless he repents of it and turns, he may never see the welcome open arms of God, who has always been there, beckoning and welcoming him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This contrasts with those who enjoy seeing people fighting, always fighting against each other, fighting and finding war-mongering or promoting wars, their strategy for life, to cause disturbance and insecurity as a way to get their way and to push people down from their uh, secure positions of advantage. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Scriptures also call him the Lord of our Shalom because he is the first, the great reconciler between us and God. 
He stretched between the breach that we could not bridge. In Ephesians 2, Paul takes us from dead in sins and objects of wrath to alive in Christ and seated with Him in the heavenlies. We who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, reconciled to God and, yes, to one another. Only in Christ, who is our peace, can the hostility of our day be overcome. So we keep our focus on Jesus, on the gospel, on reconciliation, and avoid letting the media, the politicians, and the secular opinions of our day to become our gospel. Peacemakers know they are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they take the gospel of reconciliation through Jesus Christ to the world. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is in contrast to those who have heard the word but has made no impact on how and where they live. They are so caught up in the world that like the seeds which are choked by weeds, the allurements of the world and how other people might think takes away any work by the Holy Spirit as he is trying to mature them to have a bold and thriving faith. So these seeds lack courage for the gospel and doubt that there is any power in the life of Christ and continue to live like the world in any any discernible way while keeping um, a kind of a facade, a superficial image of church membership. In contrast, trusting God and walking in His Spirit through daily life, the new nature that God puts within believers increasingly produces practical righteousness in us if we are submitted to the Spirit. It is only by Christ's righteousness that we are called into the kingdom. Unfortunately, we see a lot of self-righteousness permeating Christian circles today, and sometimes I see it in myself. Why? Because we let our thinking be perverted from biblical thinking to a secularized Christianity. It's getting harder and harder to lead from a gospel-centric position. As divisiveness has permeated the Christian church, so persecution can come from within our ranks as well as from the secularist. Jesus says here, that the prophets were persecuted for their righteousness. The prophets were persecuted by the self-righteous religious community as well as the secular communities of their day. Our role is to grow in righteousness and put self-righteousness to death. Let us be sure we are persecuted for righteousness and let us be sure we do not become the persecutor by self-righteous attitudes, actions, and words. Next, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. This contrasts with not being radically changed by my relationship to Christ for anyone to notice anything different by my imitation of Christ or their disdain for Christ who I represent. When your life is so aligned with Jesus, you start to show his attributes in the world. You start to imitate the things of Christ without even knowing it. You know, some married couples who have lived for many years, start to imitate one another. Relationships transform and change us, and so it is with our relationship with Christ. In fact, all the qualities which we look at today in the Beatitudes are qualities of Jesus' own very life, in total devotion to the Father's will. If you are getting persecuted for anything other than what are in the Beatitudes, then that's on you and you alone. The more you spend time with Jesus in His Word, the more you will recognize where you are and who you are. To sum it up, Jesus is telling us these beautiful promises for for all of those who have put their trust in Jesus. Here is your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
you are the blessed. You are blessed now and you will be blessed forevermore. So here's the lesson for us. A secure identity in Christ promotes a vibrant spiritual life. So the first principle is a secure identity in Christ promotes a vibrant spiritual life. Perhaps you have had your identity stolen, maybe perhaps through cyber attack. You didn't know your identity had been compromised until damage was done to your bank account, your reputation, your security. So it is with our identity in Christ. Media, politics, the secular world, they all want to steal your identity. Those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord can be taken captive by secular philosophy and cultural norms that depend on human tradition, human thinking, and spiritual forces against Christ's work. And when I speak of spiritual forces, there's no question the devil wants to steal our identity by convincing of us false thinking, of our failures and our inadequacy. We must counter this by rooting our thinking in the scripture and our relationship in Christ and his righteousness. Finally, our sinful nature wants to steal our identity. In our flesh, we can turn from righteousness to self-righteousness, from his righteousness to self-righteousness, and become the persecutor rather than the persecuted for righteousness. Please be aware of this. This kind of identity theft can happen to any one of us. How do we protect ourselves? Remember, you are the poor in spirit. You mourn over sin. You are meek, or you seek to be meek and humble and repentant. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are the merciful and you become the pure in heart. You seek to be peacemakers because you are in Christ. So live like that in the power of the Spirit and flourish as a child of God. Now, if this is not who you are, there's a simple solution. Turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior and enter into the blessedness of finding security and identity in Him and Him alone. So what defines you? Childhood disappointments? A family name, marital struggles, social agendas, careers and titles, education, or maybe your health, maybe your favorite sports team, or perhaps what people say about you. These are thieves of your true identity in Christ. You are the blessed. You are the beloved. You are in Christ, and when you're secure in this truth and live it out, you flourish. Jesus, after telling his disciples they are blessed and the loved, now tells them more about themselves, beginning with verse 13. Not only are they eternally fortunate, but they're making eternal difference in the world. For he says to his disciples on the hillside, and to you and to me, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Salt is about flavor and preservation. As followers of Jesus, we give the world the flavor of Christ, and we serve to preserve goodness, which evil seeks to destroy. Light is given to repel darkness. As followers of Christ, we hold back the darkness of wickedness and the darkness of the demonic forces in the spiritual realm. Jesus is saying, this is who you are, salt and light, so live like it. We must be countercultural, or we will lose our saltiness. There's a great danger when believers flirt with secular society. One person I read, um, he says, the church is married to the spirit, of, or the spirit of this age, and when they are, they will find themselves widowed in the next generation, which means ineffectual. When we become married to secular life, our faith becomes ineffectual, resulting in a next generation that does not know him. When we flirt with the secular age, we are in danger of losing our biblical and spiritual impact. Let me give you an example of this.
There are huge debates of justice today, uh, especially racial justice. We hear all kinds of terms being thrown around by those opposing forces, but as Christians, we're called to biblical justice, not just justice defined by the world, an empty justice that have no basis or rooting or anchor. Biblical justice includes treating every person equally as an image bearer, a sacred image bearer of God, regardless of our race, religion, sexuality, or any other classification. Biblical justice includes generosity and advocacy for the poor, compassion for those who are disabled, and embracing everybody who is marginalized. Biblical justice includes accepting responsibility for corporate sins, community sins, national sins, as well as, of course, for our individual sins. As Christians, we are called to be countercultural in what we believe, how we live and what we speak, and how we speak. If we are, we will influence our communities for good and point people to the Savior, that they need and we need. If we are not, we will lose our saltiness and our impact. This can be really hard in today's combative culture. In fact, most of us are likely to avoid hot-button conversations with people who hold different views. We need to be willing to have courageous, gospel-centered conversations that involve active listening and empathy, and which seeks to find common ground while upholding biblical truth. Biblical truth. And BSF members and all of us who participate in this ministry, we are called to be light of the world. We move out of our churches and our BSF groups into our families, workplaces, schools and communities, and community groups. We move out into these places and bring the light of Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. And because you have trusted him by faith, this is your identity. You are the light of the world. You are holding back the darkness. We do not hide our light, or there will be great cost to our communities and our cultures. People will not hear the gospel, secular views will win, and division will move beyond hostility to violence. But if you let your light shine as Christ's ambassador, you will make a difference. Remember who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is your identity. Live it out. And our second principle is a secure identity in Christ propels kingdom impact. A secure identity in Christ propels kingdom impact. Over the centuries, Christians around the world have lived out their identity as salt and light by establishing churches and hospitals, schools, building wells and communities. For people who are lack clean water and many other things, they have gone there into dark and most neediest places to supply and to serve. Today, we see so many ministries serving girls and boys who are trafficked, feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and serving the mentally ill. And many secular organizations also do this. Why? Because Christianity has shaped culture over the centuries with its salt and light. Frequently, I hear stories of how God's people from around the world are making a difference in education and law, health practice, and more. Men and women who have started prayer groups in their offices and leading Bible study groups in difficult countries, under persecution, in neighborhoods, in small groups in their homes. BSF groups are in prisons. Teaching children in your churches or in your back, uh, backyard Bible clubs. You are the salt of the earth with every little and small ways in which you move and act to represent Christ and bring the gospel into your world. You are the light of the world. Each of us has a God-given platform we can show the world what marriage can look like, what raising godly children can look like, 
what racial reconciliation can look like and what welcoming the stranger and showing hospitality can look like. We all have a platform to show the world what servanthood looks like. And we have a platform to show the world what forgiveness and grace can look like. You are making a difference. You are holding back the darkness. Don't let cultural norms or self-doubt steal your identity. Live as citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is yours now and forevermore. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let us not give up, but go forth in the power of the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit to undertake kingdom impact into our communities. God bless you.